Second Samuel chapter 8 is the scripture we have for this morning. Um, I was reminded by Ethan, uh, for all of us, uh, after the church, there is a brief members meeting immediately after the service. So after we get done praying, if you can go and, and get your children and bring them back into the meeting as soon as possible, that would be great so we can get started with the members meeting. So Second Samuel chapter 8. It's going to be the scripture that we start with here this morning. And we're going to begin reading in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 13. So read along in God's word together with me. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for the book of 2 Samuel. And we thank you so much for the reign of King David and how it points us ultimately to the reign of your Son, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. I pray that we would see Christ clearly as we look through these chapters in 2 Samuel, that you would move our hearts and touch our hearts with fresh affections for you. And we thank you so much, Jesus, for laying down your life on the cross so that any sinner who repents and trusts in you might be saved. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I was reflecting just this past week, uh, just with the coronavirus scare in China, and they're estimating upwards of 60,000 people perhaps infected with the virus. People are dying. Um, There's been, you know, not as much of a scare this past week, but a scare over the last couple of weeks that, oh, could this spread over to the United States and cause uh, difficulty here? And, you know, with the uncertainties of things like a pandemic, like a coronavirus, and I read uh, the news story that there were some troops, U.S. troops in Afghanistan just the other day that were attacked and and were killed. Um, it's, it's, It's a very uncertain world. There's gunmen in Thailand loose and shot 20 people just this past couple of days, and uh, there's just these stories on the news constantly of uncertainty and chaos and disorder that just flows out from the fall. And as we look at these stories, brothers and sisters, it's so good to know that we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we're under the lordship of a king who can never be dethroned, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the first point I want to hit from the passage this morning is victory. Victory. And this phrase here in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we looked at 2 Samuel 7 last week and and, uh, the Davidic covenant, and we're moving now into uh, 2 Samuel 8, where we see David begin to extend the boundaries of Israel because of the power that the Lord had given to him. You see this phrase in 2 Samuel chapter 8, 1 through 14, repeated 
numerous times that, and it's that last verse there in 14, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. We saw in earlier in 2 Samuel that there was a fortification, actually the, the city of David, Jerusalem, for all the years, all the way back to the times of Joshua, the, the Jebusites dwelled in Jerusalem and they could not be dislodged. The opposition of the Jebusites, the stubbornness of the Jebusites was so strong in the city of Jerusalem that the Israelites could not conquer Jerusalem until the reign of King David. I've mentioned to us that David is a type of Christ. David's life in many ways displays, it points to, it prefigures, it foreshadows, it represents, it's a shadow of, it parallels the life of King Jesus. So King David's life in many ways points to the life of King Jesus and when we see the fortification of the Jebusites in Jerusalem finally getting dislodged, it's meant to remind us that God's king is one who dislodges and conquers even the most stubborn opposition. And the greatest evidence of that is all of us sitting in the room here this morning. We were once hostile in mind, doing evil deeds against the Lord. We were once as Ephesians 2 describes, as the far away ones who have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ has conquered our stubborn hearts for those of us who have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus. He has conquered us. He has won us to Himself through His steadfast love and His kindness, which has led us, as Romans 2 says, to repentance. But we see also that these victories begin to expand out from the kingdom of Israel. And it, it, you just see the beginning, the head of uh, chapter 8 in Second Samuel. It just says David's victories. And it talks about how he conquers over and brings Moab into subjection. And then he goes and goes after Syria. And, and then the Edomites as well. All of these were formerly stubborn, unconquered enemies that the Lord had Israel constantly bothered by, and now under the reign of King David, these enemies are brought into subjection by the power of God through the king. And one of the things that this is meant to point us to, brothers and sisters, is the reign of King Jesus. You see, King David was used by God to extend the domain of the kingdom of Israel further than it had ever extended before. To the north and to the south, east and west, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. David and actually his son Solomon's reign, it represents the high watermark of dominion for the kingdom of Israel. Lands that had never yet been conquered by Joshua even were conquered by King David. And the extending of the dominion of the kingdom of Israel is also likewise meant to point us to the truth that one day the kingdom 
will know no boundaries. And this is all because of Jesus Christ and His death on the cross for our sins and His resurrection from the dead and His mighty return. When Christ returns, it's all over. And every enemy will be brought down and brought into complete subjection and brought underneath of the triumph of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. So this is meant to encourage us that King Jesus has and will have dominion over a larger list of nations and territories than the greatest king of Israel before him ever did. He sends forth his people to the ends of the earth to preach the gospel to all nations under his heavenly authority. The story of the Lord giving victory to David wherever he went is meant to encourage us also with this truth. And let this be an application to us this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. Oh yes, it encounters opposition, brothers and sisters. And yes, indeed, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, as the Scriptures say. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is unstoppable. And though the church suffers and is weak in and of itself, as John mentioned earlier, empowered by the Holy Spirit, it moves forward, preaching the gospel and making disciples of all nations. The dominion of the kingdom of God cannot be stopped as it advances to the ends of the earth. And through the power of the Holy Spirit in His people, God is moving ever forward in His mission. And in the end, take heart, brothers and sisters, every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2 says. So all opposition will be brought down in defeat because King Jesus is victorious over all. So when you read 2 Samuel chapter 8 and you see the victories of David, be reminded that this is meant to point you to something that's going to last forever. The victory of Christ over the nations. Let it comfort you this morning, brothers and sisters. As we transition to point two, security, I want to highlight verses 15 through 18. It says, so David reigned over all Israel. He now was king not only over the tribe of Judah, he's, he's the king from the tribe of Judah, and reigned over that for seven and a half years, but now, for a total of 40 years collectively, now he's reigning over all of Israel. And the borders of Israel expand here all the way up to the north, to the Euphrates River, which was prophesied about in Genesis chapter 15, when God promised Abraham how far the promised land boundaries were going to extend to. It never reached that during the time of Joshua. But here, in this context here, the borders of Israel push all the way up to the Euphrates River, fulfilling the promise of the Lord given all the way back in Genesis chapter 15 with the Abrahamic covenant. 
And so this is just awesome, brothers and sisters, to see that the Lord, this is important. He always fulfills His promises. It's not always in our timing. But God always gets it done. He always gets it done. And here David reigned over all Israel, and it says here he administered justice and equity to all the people. There's a picture of what heaven is going to look like. In this fallen world, we don't see justice carried out by humans very often and equity to all the people. But this is an image of what we're going to experience forever and ever under the reign of King Jesus. There's stability and security imaged here in 15 through 18. There's a stable government underneath of a true king chosen by God. And just like there'll be a true, stable, secure government, as the government is on the shoulders of King Jesus forever and ever, which we will enjoy in the new heavens and new earth. So David, by God's power, subdued all of his enemies, and now he's reigning securely over the people of Israel, imaging the stability and the security, not only that the people of Israel had during this time, in about 1,000 B.C., but thousands and thousands of years, even on to eternity, that we will enjoy forever in the new heavens and new earth, when King Jesus reigns from the new Jerusalem, and we get to see Him face to face and bow before those precious feet that were pierced for us so that we might even be standing there in His presence. You know, this side of heaven, in this fallen world, there are wars and rumors of wars. There's injustice and there's inequity. But when Christ returns, He's bringing an end to all that. He's bringing all things underneath of His feet. And never again will be, will there ever be injustice again, brothers and sisters. Take heart. Never again will there be inequity like there is in the, in this fallen world, even when this fallen world is at its best. Because there will only be peace and justice and perfect equity in the eternal reign of Christ. No threat. Listen to this. No threat will ever rise up again. All will be eternal joy and righteousness and peace. So let us place our hope this morning, brothers and sisters, in Christ and the eternal future we will have in heaven. Don't put your hope in this fallen world. Yes, we should look to work for justice and equity and we should work as Christians to be salt and light in this world but don't ever expect that we will achieve it fully. Christ is going to achieve it fully when He returns. And this image here is something for us to look forward to. Because I want to remind you, church, that our future in Christ is going to be better than we can even imagine. Amen? I can't wait to enjoy heaven together with you. The third point I want to bring up is kindness. Kindness. And I'm not going to be able to dip into every single verse in this chapter, but we're in 2 Samuel chapter 9 now. David's kindness to Mephibosheth. Um, Just to set this up a little bit, Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. Jonathan, who was 
friends and had made covenants together with King David while he was yet still alive. Jonathan died in battle. And here is his son who is crippled in both feet from a fall when he was very young. And this passage of Scripture here is put here because David did not move on from doing kindness to the house of Saul, his enemy. Remember what Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He showed faithfulness, David, to his promises that he made to Jonathan and covenanting together with him. He said that he would be friendly toward not just Jonathan, but also to his offspring. And he drew Mephibosheth, now an older man, near to his own household, so he could eat at the king's table always. Does that remind you of something? This is where reading the Old Testament is meant to just cause your mind in the Holy Spirit to come alive with all kinds of connections. David could not forget Jonathan and the covenant friendship he had with him, even after his death. And likewise, God's faithfulness to us, whom He has covenanted together with, with the new covenant in His blood. God cannot forget that covenant that He has made. And it stands even after our deaths. His love, His steadfast love, goes on beyond the grave for us as His children. And this also should manifest itself in our own lives toward our brothers and sisters in Christ and our faithfulness to them as well. How lightly one application this section provides. How lightly friendships are thrown aside these days. How often we are apt to move on from those who have done us good in the past. David did not do that. Even though memories of Saul must not have been very pleasant. Matthew Henry writing about this says, As David was a type of Christ, the Lord his son, his root and offspring, let this kindness to Mephibosheth remind us of the kindness and love of God our Savior to fallen man, to whom he was under no obligation as David was to Jonathan. The Son of God seeks this lost and ruined race who sought not after him. He comes to seek and to save them. And it's true that David was not under obligation to do kindness to Mephibosheth personally, but he lavished his generosity upon him anyway. And this is an image of the Lord and His generous love toward us. It's a picture, brothers and sisters, of the grace of God, which He lavished on us upon repenting and believing in Jesus. If you've done that. God does not owe us anything. But we are crippled completely from ever being able to earn merit of ourselves that would recommend us to Him. And so God brings crippled, ruined sinners at and brings them into His table to eat at the table of the King. And promises... As David promises in verse 7, if you'll look there with me, please. And David said to him, Oh, here it is unto your own ears. Do not fear, 
For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And look at Mephibosheth's God-honoring response. He paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? There's a healthy response to amazing grace for every single one of us. God, who am I that you would have loved me like this to send your own son down to die on the cross for a wretched sinner like me? And then it says in verse 13, look there with me in chapter 9. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem. And he ate always at the king's table. Mephibosheth ate always at the king's table. And I just want to highlight this to you. Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are going to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb together as brothers and sisters in Christ, children of God. As Tom reminded us this morning, children of God by grace, crippled with nothing to recommend us to Him, and yet He takes us crippled and ruined sinners and brings us into His house in order to show us eternal favor so that we might sit at His table and enjoy His presence forever. How about that? What an awesome God and what an awesome Savior. Jesus Christ. I thought I was going to get through uh, chapters 11 and 12 uh, this morning, but there's no way that's going to happen. (laughs) And so we're going to just enjoy chapter 10 together and the points related to chapter 10. The first one I want to highlight in the next point, point four, is humiliation. So David does this kindness. He brings Mephibosheth into his house and he's eating at the king's table. And by the way, King Jesus is going to serve us at table. His nail-scarred hands are going to hand us a dinner plate. As if he hadn't done enough for us already. Oh, worthy is the lamb who was slain. This story here in 10, 1 through 5, is, is a very interesting one. King David did an act of kindness, not just to Mephibosheth, but he does an act of kindness to Hanun, who is the son of Nahash. It says in verse 1 of chapter 10, look at this. After this king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place, and David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So there's this loyalty in the character of King David, just as there's a loyalty and a steadfast love in the character of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. He does not turn away from us but is patient with us even as we struggle in our daily lives. David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. Look at his kindness. He's going to console this Gentile ruler over the loss of his father. I mean, that's very kind. 
Verse 3, but the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their Lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he's honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and spy it out and to overthrow it? And so Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. And when it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Instead of respect, Hanun's men humiliated David's men by cutting off half their beards and their garments in the middle so they were exposed and they were embarrassed and not fit for a public return as emissaries of the king of Israel. His men were ashamed of how they were treated and what they looked like and David let them stay at a distance until their beards grew back. An important point here is sometimes when you do something kind and generous and consoling to others, evil is returned to you instead. Don't expect that just because you're doing the right thing, that that means people are going to treat you well. We must do our acts of kindness for the glory of God and for the audience of one, not expecting for it to be returned to us. Do everything you do, brothers and sisters, as unto the Lord. For man is often going to let us down. I don't know if you thought of this, but the humiliation that these men suffered and David through these men is something also that our Lord Jesus can relate to. Did you ever ponder this? Part of the suffering of the cross was the humiliation of the cross. Mockery. Ridicule. Being spit upon. Nakedness. And shame. Were attached to the cross. As well as it being the most physically torturous means of execution... When kindness is met with humiliation, let us likewise embrace the road of humiliation for the sake of the glory of Christ. For He endured it in order to save us. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, that for the joy set before Him, knowing He was going to save all of you and me, all of you who have believed. For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. No cakewalk. And it actually says this, scorning its shame. How about let's just like put a little sign up above your head. Hail King of the Jews. Let's cast lots for your clothing. Let's laugh in mockery at your feet as you're dying to shed your blood to atone for our sins if we would repent and believe. Let's, let's mock you for it, Son of God. Let's whip you until you're beat to within an inch of your life. Let's hang you up on the cross naked in front of your mother and in front of all your disciples and in front of the watching crowd. Let's mock you to scorn. He endured it. 
He endured it for you. Beloved, He endured it. He scorned the shame for the joy that was set before Him. He knew that this valley of humiliation was the means by which His Father would be glorified and His bride would be rescued and ransomed. Oh, dear brother and sister, let us likewise be willing to embrace humiliation for the sake of following Christ. I was thinking of the passage in 1 Corinthians 6 when it talks about that Christians shouldn't take other Christians to court and lawsuits because unbelievers are going to see two Christians in the court of law fighting it out and just like, Oh my gosh, like what kind of witness is this going to be? Essentially, 1 Corinthians 6 is talking about. And, and Paul just says this phrase that just blasts our American culture to bits. He just says, why not rather be wronged? Oh, if you want to know something that's absolutely offensive to our American culture, we cannot stand being wronged. We can't stand it. It's human nature. It's everybody all over the world. But in America, we got our rights. Not as Christians, we don't. When it comes to laying down our lives and denying ourselves and following Jesus, we lay down our rights. And we come underneath of the lordship of King Jesus and we say, why not rather be wronged in this situation? Christ sees Christ was wronged. Christ knows. Oh, friend, if you can struggle like I can with like lacking a stomach of being willing to be wronged, let us repent of our pride and be willing to enter into the humiliation of Jesus Christ and be willing to follow Him on that path of denying ourselves, humbling ourselves, and even saying, why not rather be wronged? If Christ can be glorified and displayed through my life in a humble willingness to take the loss instead of fight for myself, shine, Jesus, shine. Shine out for my life in that way. Suffering ourselves to be wronged is the victory when we choose to pursue that path, the path of humiliation. Point five, power. Power. This deals with the second half. After, um, after Hanun does this, uh, he regrets it. And he regrets it very badly because the men of Israel recover. And it says in verse 6, when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, they went and hired, they went and hired men to go and fight with David. And they did everything they could to stand against King David. And the Word of God talks about here that the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled and they likewise fled. And Joab King David's lead commander crushed the Ammonites. 
And when they saw, verse 15, that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And there it is in 16. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. And they came to Halam with Shobak, the commander of the army. They rallied once again. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and they crossed the Jordan and they came to Halam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobak, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were with the servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. And so the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. No kidding. They became subject to them. Friend, just a sobering word here. Your knee is going to bow before King Jesus. It's just a question of whether it's a willing, humble belief in Jesus and a repentance right now that you'll fall on your knees and worship him as your king while you still have time. If you reject him and go on your willful way in your sin like I once did before Christ saved me, if you do that, when you die, your knee also likewise will bow, but it will bow in utter terror as the powerful King of kings and Lord of lords stands before you. The gravity and the weight of his glory alone will bring you to your knees. And it will be too late to repent at that point. But you will drop your knee in just total subjection as a conquered one. And then you will be cast into the just judgment of God into hell forever. Please, today is the day of salvation for you. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. Become His willing subject today. Come underneath of His loving Lordship and He will shed His blood for you and atone for all of your transgressions. Otherwise, if you live in such a way as to bring humiliation and shame upon Him all your life, on that great day of judgment, you will be filled with terror. But it doesn't have to be that way. Be reconciled to God today by trusting in Jesus Christ, God's Son. There is a power. We're talking about God that is so serious. It's displayed here by David with military might. But when the king of kings came into Jerusalem, he did not come in on a white horse. He came in humble on a donkey. Matthew 21.5 says, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. I'll note this, beloved. Jesus is the king that subdues through power in a different way. The power of obeying His Father's will and going to the cross to die for sinners and rising from the dead on the third day, that is how He crushed the head of the serpent, Satan. That's how He crushed and broke 
the dominion of sin over your life that was leading you to hell and set you free. That is how He has defeated death so that death has lost its sting for you if you've believed. By humbling Himself and dying for us. David brought men into subjection to Him by causing them to die. King Jesus brings us into subjection to Him by Him dying Himself for us. God's enemies are brought down by the power of the King of Kings. And the power of His humility is greater than any military might on earth. And the final point I want to draw out is peace. I love how verse 19 says, And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. When Jesus Christ returns, the final judgment will see to it that never again will an enemy attack or pain God's people ever again. There will be peace. All enemies will be brought finally underneath of the feet of King Jesus. And we will enjoy King Jesus forever without the threat ever again. Ponder this. Without the threat ever again of another enemy ever coming and attacking us. We today, as Christians, we live under constant spiritual warfare, whether we're aware of it on a day-to-day basis or not. We are constantly in battle. There's constantly a roaring lion seeking to devour us, Scripture says. There is a day coming very soon where the roaring lion will be cast into the bottomless pit forever and ever. There's a day that is coming when your indwelling sin will no longer ever bother you. Again, you will not ever experience ever again sinning against God. The opposition within yourself. And the greatest enemy, death. Because Christ was raised from the dead. As a first fruits, we also, who die in the Lord, will be raised to new life when Jesus returns. And we will receive glorified, new, resurrected bodies that will never suffer pain ever again in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth. And we will dance in the new Jerusalem on streets that are golden. We will enjoy the great bridegroom, Jesus Christ, as we enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb, as Alex led us in worship this morning. He's prepared a place for me and you. And how glorious this victory is. I just want to close with reading this quote to apply a little bit further the victory of Christ into our lives. And then I'll close The message of victory over all that holds human beings captive continues in the 21st century to address many who perceive at least some aspects of their lives in bondage. Christ's victory over sin through His sacrificial death and His resurrection for our justification 
offers those who feel shame and guilt over misdeeds release. Release and liberations from the chains that bind them to past failures to live as faithful people of God. Just pause for just a moment there. Brothers and sisters, by the grace and power of God who has saved you, your sin no longer defines you. Christ defines you and I. And the victory that He has won for us on the cross to those who are evaluating their lives on the basis of their own performance, to any standard of their own achievement, that in all honesty they do not reach consistently Christ's victory means that their ultimate worth is determined by His love and acceptance. It's King David's love and bringing favor into Mephibosheth's life and bringing him, searching for him, the Scripture says, searching for him, finding him out and bringing him into his household, seating him at his table, giving him a place of honor and saying, you're going to be here for life. That's an image of the favor of God by grace that rests upon you for eternal life. It's His love and acceptance that defines you. It's His favor that defines you. Now why this fear and unbelief has not the Father put to grief His spotless Son for us? And that allows them The quote says, to deal realistically with their gifts and talents, there's sometimes difficult situations that retard their ability to perform, their frustrations with hindrances within themselves and from others. To those who have been entrusted with the care of those who cannot contribute in measurable ways in our competitive world, such as the aging or the physically or mentally challenged, Christ's victory ends the captivity to standards of worth that God does not use in regarding His own as worthy of love and acceptance. Amen. And I love this. And let this minister to you this final word. To those who live in the shadow of fears and anxieties of every kind, Christ's triumph demonstrates His love that casts out all fear. The proclamation of Christ as victor continues to be a significant part of the good news. Christians proclaim to the world. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 and 58 says this. Oh, and how we need more of this reminded to us every day. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray together. How can we thank you enough, King Jesus, for preparing a place for us? We are so thankful, our God and Savior, for showing us favor and preparing a place for us, as Alex read from John 14. Jesus, You are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through You. I pray that every one of us would bow our knees before You and repent of our sins and trust in You. 
I pray for all of us who have already done that, that we would take stock this morning of all that You've done. And we would be freshly reminded of Your steadfast love and Your favor that You've put over our lives. That You would have brought us into Your household. That You would have brought us crippled as we are. Dead in sin as we are. To make us alive in Christ Your Son. And to seat us at Your table your table of blessing and rejoicing. We're so thankful, Jesus, for all that you've done. And we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. But thanks be to God, church, who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ. Amen. Excellent. Let's uh, go and get our children and come back for our members' meeting that we'll have in about Five minutes, if possible. So let's go ahead and do that. Thanks so much.